Today, we wrap up our conversation with Tenny and we left off looking at how the injustices experienced in Nigeria are not unique. We also discussed how fellow Africans in other countries have adopted Nigerian models for protesting injustice in their countries. Today, we pivot the conversation to what Nigeria's developmental and foreign policy goals are and how the current administration is executing on those topics. Please enjoy the episode. I just wanted to give another example of what you, you meant. During the NSARS time, I was talking to a former colleague at work who's Indian in the US. Um, and he told me he had heard about it because of football Twitter. And Nigerians are very prominent in the football Twitter space. And so from, they're talking about football, they're talking about NSARS, and that's how he's hearing about it. So your illustration of, you know, it's, it's as if you're, you're talking about private issues, but you're speaking into a, a megaphone is, spot on i think i'd love to i'd love to to kind of touch on some of the develop like nigeria developmentally um one of the interesting like phrases i see on twitter or on social media that that that's always very hilarious to me when people say nigeria which way and like to some degree that question is like you know what's going on but to some degree it's like yo what 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 are we doing where are we going um so i'd like to ask you you know given your understanding of the nigerian context at this time what do you feel like the current administration's developmental goals are you know how are they executing on them and then if if those goals are even in the wrong place what should our goals be um yeah on the surface, looking at what the current administration has been doing, it seems like they've been focused on infrastructure and on, on transport infrastructure more precisely and on um, social protection. So it's these are two big things that they've, that they've been working on. Social protection includes school feeding programs, includes things like trade money that they share during the elections. It includes, you know, just the general grants that they're trying to give to poor people or to, to, to protect the vulnerable. This... I, I suspect that this whole social protection thing comes more from Buhari. I think it's it's um it's a policy that I think it's a it seems like it's his body language, you know, the idea of oh let's the people that are poor, let's take care of them. What I think is missing is the fact that distribution of social protection costs a lot of money. And if you're doing that, you need to also be putting in systems in place to make sure that you're going to increase your earnings. And that is not coming through clearly. So Fiscally, Nigeria is in a very bad situation. I joined a webinar with uh, the Minister of Finance and Co. sometime last year when the pandemic started. And you could almost slice the gloom in the room. Like it was such a depressing um, seminar, webinar, because it was almost like people were a bit confused. Or oh, not confused, just it was just a very, very bad situation, you know. And um, for example, last year was Nigeria exports crude oil, and that has helped. Uh, trade balance over time. So we are not doing any work in, we're not doing enough work in trying to improve our Greek and some of these other things. But we've always had crude oil as a savior where, and it helps us with our trade balance and things like that. But last year, I don't understand what happened. Yes, crude oil, we were not able to sell as much or export as much. Also the prices crashed because of the pandemic, also because of the oil price wars. But for some reason, our consumption also increased, which is, quite fascinating to me because there's increase in poverty and then in a pandemic here you had like Nigeria's imports shut up to so the imports bill and this is in, in dollar terms so it's not just because of the exchange rates 
in dollar terms between 2019 and 2020, our import bill increased. And in 2020, we had a very significant trade deficit. It means that we sold much less than we bought as a country. And this is in a context of forex, increasing forex scarcity, in a context of reducing government revenue, in a context of increasing poverty, in a context of inflation. I still, I mean, when I saw those numbers, I shared them with a friend of mine that is a researcher as well. And he was also amazed because we follow Nigeria's imports and you know what Nigeria is spending on very closely. Like, <laughs> I still don't understand how, because for almost all the other countries that I checked in 2020, their consumption dropped because it was a pandemic year, right? But Nigeria's import increased in a pandemic year and significantly, you know? So it just shows that there is a, I mean, very structural issues with our economy and the way it's, it's set up. I think that one thing that they're not getting right is the will to truly, truly start to move the Nigerian economy away from a reliance on crude oil exports. This is a super important existential issue for Nigeria because for a long time, when oil came into the WhatsApp group or when oil came into the conversation in the 70s or whenever, it's been that thing that we have, you know, Nigeria is defined as the oil producing nation, da, 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 one of the largest, da, 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 da. and it will take a lot of doing for us to start to dissociate ourselves from that idea. For us, oil prices now are high, but um, we're still struggling because. I mean, some of the other issues because of the, so the subsidies that came back on oil uh, earlier this year, and just the fact that it's no longer enough. So the, 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 the consumption pressure that we have, the demand for dollars because of how much we're importing, just high oil prices are no longer enough to, to, to stabilize the Nigerian economy. So I think we're not pragmatic enough about the reality that we need to very seriously start investing our way out of the oil sector, out of the reliance. We're not saying oil will end, but then out of an over-reliance on crude oil exports, because crude oil makes up about 80 to 90% of our exports as a country, out of an over-reliance on crude oil rent, so rent from the oil sector as the as about 80 to 90% of the source of revenue for the Nigerian government. You look at Nigeria's GDP, Nigeria's GDP is diversified, you know, I mean, oil makes up just about 10 to 12% or even less of Nigeria's GDP. It's a lot of other things. You have growth in sectors like telecoms, IT, even services, generally growth in services, you have agri that is also contributing very significantly. So the GDP is somewhat diversified, but revenue is very important because revenue is literally how the government can operate and how the, so revenue, it's from revenue that the governments can do social investments and be that giving people money and doing all of those things. So if we don't figure out a way to plant the seeds that will lead eventually to an increase in revenue, then we're going to, we're already in big trouble, but we're going to be in even bigger trouble because, for example, the um, I, I think I mentioned some 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 time ago that last year we were using almost all of our revenue to pay to to pay debts, and we keep on taking more loans because we need we need money, right? The fact that you don't have any money does not mean that you you are going to stop all your development projects. It's not possible because that means you won't even have a future at all. So you need to continue going, but you should at least make sure that you're setting things up in a way that you will be able to repay this thing sometime in the future, that you know your, your, your economy will be, will be the better for it. There's some new research that I'm actually looking at that focuses this, um, specifically on this issue. But then I, I do think that that's a fundamental thing that they're not getting right. I'm not seeing enough interest or political will to truly start to divest. And it's not like, um, we're leaving oil, but then it's about growing other sectors. 
significantly there i mean they they, they move they, there's a lot of movements you know services it but then you know how the ghanaian government came there's a, the guy that was elected of akufuado and one of the things that was in his campaign was one factory one district or something like that one district one factory i don't think he's not been able to achieve that obviously but then that's a very very specific goal in terms of trying to industrialize your economy and when you talk about factories factories are not tech hubs i think nigeria is focusing too much on tech hubs tech hubs only cater to a very small percentage of the population. Now, every state is saying we have a tech hub here, a tech hub there. Yes, fine. But then that's just a minority of your population. Factories are what reach everybody else or most of the other people. So I think that there is no, I'm not seeing enough, um, I'm not seeing enough movements in that direction. They released a new plan very recently. I think the poverty reduction through economic growth plan. And I was just thinking that guys, the the simple answer here is jobs right that's what everybody needs that's what nigerians need. that's what africans need good jobs that's, that's it right Be, apart from sharing money to people give people a way to earn a livelihood a good livelihood for themselves and in doing so they're contributing to the economy because the economy is not an abstract thing the economy is a sum of everybody's activities so if you give someone an opportunity to leave their house and engage in some activity, then they are contributing to the economy. So it's a win-win for everybody. You can even tax their incomes, you know? So I don't think that there's enough focus on that. When it comes to jobs, I think this is more of a vice president's agenda. So it seems Osimbanjo is very interested in jobs and that's why he's been, you know, making some of the moves that he's been making. But I think that he's too, in, he's too focused on the modern aspects of, of jobs, in my own opinion, right? Facebook, this one, Google brilliant very good but then these refer more to our cities and to the more educated southern population and just a few people in in some of these places in jobs for nigerians jobs for bandits you know or jobs for the bandits demography if i call them that the bandits demography will be the average youth that is unemployed is very um has very little education and maybe their skills can be more relevant in a factory like setting so I think I just made up the bandit, the bandit demographic. That's what, <laughs> so that's what we call the episode, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there's a Twitter demographic and there's a bandit, but I know it sounds like demonizing a group of people, but then I just mean that, you know, these guys that may not be able to work in tech hubs, you can't teach everybody to code. I mean, how much coding do we So yeah, just um, a bit more um, realistic um, reflection on the needs of the different parts of the population and making sure that they're meeting those needs with the units, like the objective being jobs. And if you're thinking about jobs, you need to move away from the all sector because it's other sectors that can create the kinds of jobs that you need. Yeah. I have one more question before, unfortunately, I have to head out. Um, you spoke a bit earlier about how the Nigerian foreign policy is trying to move away from just an African focus to more international, more uh, focused on the African diaspora, which is everywhere. Um, could you speak more to what that would look like um, if they begin to lean towards that, towards the African diaspora and how maybe the African diaspora themselves from all over the world can lean into that as well? I think um, I, I, for the brief time that I was in, in London, maybe for eight months or so, I, you know, for a very short time, I was part of the African diaspora or the Nigerian diaspora. And that was when I started to understand some of the needs. You know, I've also evolved in my thinking on some of these issues. Before, I used to be very, I think very indifferent to the diaspora because I used to feel like, you know, these people that, you know, <laughs> they've gone and then like, ah, let us be thinking about our own problem. 
but while I was there, I met a lot of people, people from the US, people from different parts of the world, and I mean, originally Nigerian, and I just be began to understand things from that perspective as well. And then when I when we went for the visit to the High Commission, and I saw how broken that was, I began to think about how Nigeria could even try to harness its diaspora, or not even, because when you say harness, it sounds like you're trying to extract from them, but just, you know, let them have goodwill. So I went to study on the Chivlin Scholarship, and the Chivlin Scholarship is a is an element of the UK's soft power project. You know, the UK used to be this colonial power. You know, with I mean, the, the, it was the largest empire in the world, and they wrecked the havoc that they that they that they wrecked. But now in this modern world, they are focusing more on soft power as a as a as a way to influence um the rest of the world. And one of the things that they decided to do is to use education. So you bring a bunch of people to the UK to study in UK schools, and then you hope that they will be amenable to UK interest. Now they cannot force me, so they can't come to me and say, "Oh, Tenny, we need you to do this and this and that," because I didn't sign any contract saying that. I mean, I've collected the scholarship, <laughs> I've gone on my way, but. What they did was that they tried to make you love the UK while you were there. So they exposed us a lot of UK focused programming, you know, UK culture, UK this. They tried to treat us very, very well. They didn't treat us like people that they were giving a scholarship to, but people that they wanted, like they wanted us to like them, you know. Because the idea is that you can't force soft power, you can't force influence, or you can't force um interest. So someone has to actually like an entity or be interested in it for them to try to help the entity when they are in that position. And I think it's the same for the Nigerian diaspora. You can't force the Nigerian diaspora to do anything for you. You can't, you can't, um, you can't because a lot, of, a lot of people that move to the diaspora is literally because of the way the country failed um, people. So it's more about making Nigeria an entity that they feel like associating with, that they feel like helping. And you now ask yourself, okay, what are the different ways that this can happen? I even felt like the embassy in the UK, for example, because when you look at embassies all over the world, embassies in Nigeria, just on Friday, I went to an event by the Argentinian embassy where they, um, they took an Argentinian book and translated it to, to Yoruba, you know, as a way to connect the Argentinian culture or society to Nigerian society. And just some of those activities, I wasn't seeing enough of those in the Nigerian embassy. Like, are there even spaces where the Nigerian diaspora are invited, you know, ask them what are their problems. I'm sure there are some people that are doing that, but I don't think that it's it's happening enough. So what value are you even bringing to the diaspora that can, can even get them to start thinking about, okay, what value should I give back to Nigeria? For now, the impetus to give back value is just because of this pride that some of us, even though we deny it, I know Adela <laughs> may deny it, but then the truth is that a lot of us still as much as we may feel like we hate the country, we still, deep, deep down, we still love Nigeria somewhere. I don't know, it's because we love ourselves and we are we are Nigerian, you know, for for better or for worse. So it's more coming from that, you know, deep down, still like interest in seeing the country succeed one way or the other. But how do you even provide value? And it's not always things that will cost a lot of money, just to show that you actually care about your people where you are. But when you now have a problem in the basic things, like just helping people renew their passports, this one is not even any added value, just the bare function of what you're supposed to do, you know? So yeah, even, it's almost, you know, they say, we like to say violence, or we, is it millennials or gen Z's, we, anything, we call it violence. But I think that the Nigerian embassies not giving people their passports or not helping people renew their passports at, at the right time is like extending Nigerian violence to them 
even where they are because they escaped Nigerian dysfunction and then they're still being victims of Nigerian dysfunction in the societies that they are. So I think it's some small fixes like that. It's just, you know, you can't force diaspora to do anything, but how do you engage with them in a way that they feel encouraged to contribute to the country? How do you even make it easier for them to contribute? We had a diaspora bond at some point, I, I believe, was it Nigeria or Ghana? one of those countries and I, I read that it was oversubscribed so there's serious interest you know and our diaspora is such a an important resource because diaspora like you guys in diaspora you have much higher earning capacities because of the average incomes where you live so you have much more space in terms of what you can do or your abilities you're also exposed to much more you're connected to the wider world you know what you know how let's say nigeria can connect to places like Canada, places like the US, how Nigeria can benefit from those places. You have great networks that can be beneficial to people back home in Nigeria. So you're not bogged down by the daily stress of living in Nigeria. So you, you have more space in your brain to think creatively about the country's problems. So I don't think that they can force the diaspora to do anything, but I just think that they can do better at creating an environment and, and creating a system and a structure where the diaspora is encouraged to, to contribute and where it's easier for the diaspora to contribute. So I think that that's what they can do. And those things are bare bottom barrel, very easy things that you know they can do. Just wherever you are in any country, even know who is there, right? Where the Nigerian diaspora are there? Do you even have a record of them? If they have a problem with the country, are you even there to serve them? You know, So just some very easy fixes that I think that can happen to improve the relationship with the diaspora. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing. Oh, go ahead, Adela. No, no, no. I was just going to say, well, uh, you know, she took the question out of my mouth. So that's that's my question with diaspora. I was actually going to go there with, you know, how should we, how can we be more engaged? How can, you know, how can we be relevant to the Nigerian cause? Um, but I think that's answered. So thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much, Daniela. And I think this has been fairly one. I think we've gone forever to ask a few other questions about Nigeria and the context and opportunities specifically. Um, I think you started to kind of lean into like, hey, what are the possibilities of the interrelationship between Nigeria's diaspora and, and, and Nigeria? But but I guess, um, um, Adela, do you have any final questions? But I'd like to ask this as the very last question of the, of the pod. Um, so my final question would be, of course, for our non-Nigerian, non-African listeners, um, it is when, when, when we, not when we, Jesus, when they look at Nigeria, when they hear about Nigeria, um, what should they, what should they hone in on? What should they lean in on? You know, what should be the key takeaway for them? Um, what should they be interested in? Like, what's the idea of Nigeria? What should it be for them? I think they should look at what the young people are doing. So I think they should decenter the political elites. So the, the ruling leaders and, and, and the politicians and the politics and things like that and focus on what the young people are doing. And I say that um, carefully because when we say young people, we are actually usually speaking very specifically to people in our bubble, you know, people that we know and people are doing things. And the, you have a whole other population of young Nigerians that are, you know, doing different things. If I put it that way, they're being weaponized by the political elites. They're being taken advantage of. Their their poverty is being weaponized against them. They're being used to enact violence, or they're just being neglected by the society and being left to their own to their own um, problems. So, but generally speaking, I think that there's a lot going on with the young people. Look at uh, my, my, me, myself, I'm 
amazed by some of the things that people are doing. You have, you know, people in the content creation space. You have like this YouTuber called Corti and the incredible work that she's doing. You know, you, there's just a lot of positivity and hope coming from that direction. And that is the future because these guys are going to, I don't say they're going to die soon, but they're going to not be here very soon. So it's more like, okay, there is not much to salvage from this cohort, but then who is coming up next and, and what is that looking like? So I think that that's what there should be a lot more focus on. If you talk about the SDGs, right? I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of the SDGs. I don't, I'm not much of an SDG person, but I know that there are a lot of young Nigerians that are very committed to the SDGs. You talk about climate or environmental issues. If you look at Asso Rock, you may not see much on the climate there, but when you now shift your gaze to young Nigerians, you now see people that are very actively trying to help with um, waste management, with recycling. I have a friend that recycles plastic bags into really nice bags, like tote bags that I, I mean, I love that I buy. So I, I think that there should be more focus on what young people are doing, but also maybe, I mean, that's for the outside world, but for us in Nigeria, we should also focus on the challenges that some other young people are facing and even see how we can, we can help, you know, to address that in the ways that we can. So yes, the young people in Nigeria and what they're putting out, I think that that, is absolute, that absolutely should be the focus on how to strengthen that. Thank you. Perfect, thank you. Thank you, Daniela. As a closing question, um, one, well, I'm really grateful for your time. Um, this has been fantastic. And, and I think like, I think this is one going to be one of those episodes I point people to when they ask me about the context in Nigeria currently. Um, and, and I appreciate the fact that we've had the opportunity to have this discussion. Um, so my final question is going to sound a little broad. I think you already started to touch on a lot of the exciting things about the country. Um, but is it is, you know, what are you optimistic about Nigeria moving forward? And and two, what are you pessimistic about? What are you concerned about? Uh, do you mind sharing those reflections? Optimistic about, you know, there is a trap that we can easily fall into where at the end of the day, if you're not a proper historian, your context or your scope of reflection will be limited to your lifetime. So you've read, you know, some things, but at the same, but you don't really connect to them as much as you would connect to what you're seeing in your lifetime. So when it comes to social movements, for example, when NSAS was happening, I know we felt like it was a very epochal movement in Nigeria, but I, I read an article about the Occupy Nigeria protest. And I said that a lot of the narrative was very similar to NSAS, like it was also covered worldwide, you know, and I thought, okay, well, this happened as well. Then I think I was in school. So um, given that, so given the fact that some things that I'm seeing now is very possible that they were already happening at some point and then they did not, um, they were not sustained. And, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know about that, but then it, it does feel like, Nigerians are increasingly getting politically aware. So it feels like, um, I think, especially young Nigerians, so it feels like NSAS was a rallying point where a lot of people that were indifferent to Nigeria or to the Nigeria project got, for the, for the first time, they got engaged in Nigeria. The NSAS included demographics that were even just entering the voting age. So because we had schools on strike at that moment, a lot of the people on the streets were university students. University students are from 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. These guys, some of them can't even vote. Some of them are just being able to vote. So they have their whole um, electoral, not electoral lives, their whole civic um, responsible lives ahead of them in terms of participating in elections and electoral process. And I mean, a lot of the, the youth demographic also is now slowly entering the age where they can properly participate in politics with the dropping the age for 
you know, running for office, whether it's for governor or for these things. So we're entering, millennials are now, I think some millennials are now slowly becoming um, qualified to run for president. I, I don't know if they are yet, but I think they're getting to that stage. So I'm a bit encouraged by what seems like um, increased political awareness. So if you remember, I mentioned that there is a, there is a, there's some, there's a belief that the post-independent leaders were more intellectual types. So the people that, I mean, we read some of their own work, you know, they're very different from the present day politician in that sense. You can't even compare them in terms of their, the way they think and what they know and what they say. It seemed to be a lot more intellectual then. So, and I am a bit optimistic that maybe we may have a, an eventual return. I don't know when to that because we have a crop of Nigerians that seem to be a lot more engaged with the politics of the country, but also a lot more exposed to the wider world, you know exposed to um, protests around the world. After enters, we became more, more in tune with other protests, you know, like in, Thai, in, in, in Asia and some places. So they're a lot more engaged with those things. And I am hoping that this will translate to the way they, they participate in governance when it becomes their turn. So that's something that I'm optimistic about. But then again, you know, I know we had a similar intellectual sets maybe some decades ago. I think a lot of them eventually left the country. I think that that was what happened with that particular set. I don't know. So I'm optimistic about, about that. In terms of being, and I'm also optimistic about the creativity of Nigerians and what we call the resourcefulness, what we call the resilience in quotes, although we say we don't want to be resilient, we want our country to work for us. And just the fact, the way that they keep on finding solutions, it's why the Nigerian diaspora excels wherever they are. I'm optimistic about the dividends on the Nigerian diaspora. I encourage people to migrate because I'm hoping that that will kind of still pay us back sometime in the future, one way or the other. You know, I mean, all of these Nigerians rising up to high places in, in companies, it's not, it's supposed to be a good thing. And that's one of the failures of our foreign policy because they're there, but then they don't have enough commitment to Nigeria to really even help Nigeria. So I, I, I am optimistic that over time, uh, large presence across the world will help Nigeria in, in one way or the other in terms of what we're able to, how we're able to contribute to Nigeria, able to leverage the resources where people are located to help Nigeria. Things that I'm pessimistic about, I'm pessimistic about the next two years. I'm really worried because you always feel like things have gotten as bad as, as they can, but then they get even worse. So I'm very worried about what the country will look like next year, what the country will look like the year after. I think like we'll just keep stumbling along, but then we keep, we'll keep stumbling along. But I mean, there's a recent report by the UN, I think it was released yesterday or two days ago, that altogether all Boko Haram has killed 350,000 people, much higher than the initial estimates. But because they've included the, the, the people that have died as a result of the conflict, so indirectly as a result of the conflict. And they said the majority of these were children, even children under five. So as much as we feel like, oh, we'll keep stumbling along, we'll keep surviving, people are dying everywhere. People are suffering incredibly. So I'm very worried about everybody in the country and just, you know, how many more people are we going to sacrifice before we, we figure our problems out? So I'm very, very pessimistic about, about that. And um, I'm pessimistic about Nigeria's, um, intent, Nigeria's future, economic future, because I feel like now the best time to have lay the seeds for or to have sowed the seeds for, for 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 a better future economically was 10 years ago the next best time is now and i feel like it's still not even happening now so i'm very worried that you know we're going to 
get into a real, real um, fiscal crisis. I mean, we're already in a fiscal crisis, but that it's going to get even worse. I'm very worried about some of the countries that seem to have gone ahead of us, like Venezuela and Zimbabwe. I mean, we hope that we're not at the same point because we hope that Korea will still help us one way or the other in terms of um, trade balance and things like that. But I'm very worried about how bad it can actually get because we've seen contexts where it got pretty bad. So yeah, in a nutshell, I'd say, you know, I'm optimistic about young Nigerians, I'm optimistic about the future of young Nigerians and their engagement in the political process. I'm optimistic about how an event like ENTAS may improve um, the crop of leaders that will emerge from their own um, demographic. And then I'm, um, I'm optimistic about the diaspora and, and how they may be able to contribute in the future, but I'm pessimistic about um, the current state of things security-wise and people that are dying and just how many people we're going to be losing and then also pessimistic about the economy and um the short to medium term implications of our lack of willingness to really um firmly move in in the direction that we're supposed to yep
So we are back again with our wrap-up conversation. This time we'll be talking a bit about our conversation with Tenny that we've had over the past three episodes. Um, and so just to jump right in, some of the things that we talked about was the origins of Nigerians' foreign policy um, and looking at how it's shaped primarily by the leader at the time. And now thinking to Nigeria's current present current leader, what do we think the focus of Nigeria's current foreign policy is right now? And if we have any ideas, do we think that um, we are meeting the goals or the targets of that foreign policy at this time? Any thoughts, guys? So I think uh, it's it kind of, so there's like an overall theme with the current administration. Um, but I'd like to kind of circle back with some of the notes Teddy made about you know, like Nigeria's case in West Africa and the broader African foreign policy over the years. Um, Nigeria is such a big, I mean, that's kind of where some of these ideas about the depth of Africa came from, like this country that would send peacekeeping forces all over the country, all over the continents, and be involved in Liberia, South Africa, and in lots of areas kind of either maintaining the peace or, or fighting for a broader Pan-African cause. cause. Um, parallel that against the current administration that seems to be far more protectionist, you know, shutting the land borders, um, you know, banning social media. They, they kind of seem to want, the appearance is that they like, they're more exclusionist and, and would like for a very internally focused, um, I guess, policy agenda as opposed to, as opposed to anything that involves the broader Pan-African um, However, you know, things like the AFCTA have signed, been signed in, in the last couple of years that the Nigerian government also signed on to. If you remember correctly, if I remember correctly, they took a while, but they also signed on to it. But it's interesting seeing like kind of these broader shifts and broader trends against an administration that's pretty much going the opposite way. Now we've seen kind of the effects of some of these decisions in terms of inflation aggressively rising mm-hmm. and Nigeria generally losing the status in, in, in the African atmosphere. But um, yeah, my perspective is that it seems mostly um, um, exclusionist. Mm-hmm. So I would agree with you about uh, that, you know, just the, the exclusionist policy of the Nigerian government. Um, in the same breath, I, I would also add that I don't think it's a coherent strategy. Um, you know, it's it, it just because if it's going to be exclusionist, then, you know, it has to go that line all across. You know, but like you mentioned, you know, signing on to the AF uh, to the after, um, and you know, just also having involvement in peacekeeping in you know neighboring countries, but still not really committing enough to end or to you know squash whatever terrorism is happening in neighboring uh, uh, countries. Um, I think yes, I, I agree with Tenny that you know our foreign policy, Nigeria, or rather Nigeria's foreign policy tends to go according to the leader leadership and not necessarily one that is structured on Nigeria's best interests as a country. Um, it's uh, I, I don't know if it even exists. I don't know. I, 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 There's no document anywhere. <laughs> no, no. You know, you see, it's, it's just it's you know we say this thing anywhere beleface. So I think that's what we do in Nigeria right now. It's just today. Well, social media is, is good. We can campaign with social media to get Buari elected. When Buhari is elected and here's one person saying, doesn't like Buhari, okay, we're social media. You know, tomorrow it says, oh, youth are lazy. 
you know, be creative and get things done with yourselves, then it's, oh, they're making money off Bitcoin and whatnot. Okay, ban Bitcoin. So it's, and it's like, well, we don't understand because I think we're mixing Nigeria's internal policy, how it wants to operate internally with the image it wants to portray to other countries. And I think they're both synchronous in, in terms of, well, Nigeria has the largest youth population in Africa. And whatever happened internally with our youth population is what the world will see as investment opportunities, you know, to come into Nigeria. Um, but if we don't have that view as to what we want to do with our internal politics, then it's very reflective of our lack of focus to how we want to appear to the rest of the world. I think there's just something along that line that just shows that we're on serious and we still don't have a guide or a pathway towards a foreign policy. Yeah, I would agree. I think that also the, also because the fact that the foreign policy is has been shown to be heavily dependent on the leader is a problem in itself. I would rather it be a more concrete thing um, that each leader interprets the way that they want to. But the fact that it, there's no concise agreement on what Nigeria's foreign policy is for me doesn't doesn't bear good terms. Like it doesn't seem right. Um, and, and we've seen that because of that, interpretations are all over the place and it can be incoherent and things like that. Um, another point of discussion I wanted to touch on was, I mean, we named the last episode, Giant of Africa, a distorted per, um, perception. I hope I said that right. Um, <laughs> but I want, and then we put out a poll on Twitter of like, do you think Nigeria is still the giant of Africa? And a lot of people were like, not anymore, that this is like primary school talk uh, like when that we're far from that. And I kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit. I mean, on one hand, we can we can still think of being the largest population and thus giant a lot of people, right? On the other hand, the giant also came from the fact that, oh, we were involved in so many uh, peacekeeping all over the continent and different things like that. What are your thoughts on that? Do you Do you both think that the, Nigeria still has a stake in the claim with, in that um, term of giants of Africa, or do you agree with the general um, view of that's no longer us right now? I think we are. I think it depends. I think it depends on, on, on uh, the area of focus. So for example, if it's political, um, yes, there's a strong case or strong argument to be made that Nigeria has lost its footing as a giant of Africa. When it comes to cultural influence, I think Nigeria is well ahead of the pack. Um, the whole Afrobeat march, you know, um, it's not just the music part, but what it creates, the other opportunities it creates, you know, the identity um, um, uh, solidification for the diaspora, for example, uh, the opportunities for investment, opportunities for, you know, just spreading your message across uh, your continent, across your borders. Um, I think Nigeria leads the pack in that. Um, but of course, people back home, you know, that are going through hell because of, politics or policies um, that affect their day-to-day -day living don't have time to be seen the cultural spread you know they want to make money they need to pay rent they need to feed and things like security and all that stuff which is very very important so yes the poll is reflective of you know those urgencies or those priorities and that's a key part in i think when we're discussing nigeria or we're discussing any african country it's the dichotomy between those in the diaspora and those who are back home those in the diaspora potentially can see you know the not bigger picture but 
other facets of this place, of this countries, of these topics, um, those back home get to experience just one very heavy part of it, and that influences so that distorts, you know, the conversation. So I would say yes, Nigeria is still a giant of Africa, but it depends on the area of focus. So when it comes to things like technology or innovation, I, I would say no. When it comes to security, I would say no. When it comes to political structure, I would say no. Um, but once the cultural influence, um, not just within Africa, but also outside Africa, I think Nigeria is way, 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 way ahead of the pack. And um, maybe that's an area we should exploit. Maybe that's, maybe that's the shift that the world is going into. Um, not the world as every other nation, but the world as in developing nations, the third nations. Um, that's the shift whereby if we can't compete um, militarily, can't compete in terms of uh, economy, um, then maybe we can compete with cultural influences. Um, and I think that's a broader open conversation. Yeah, I think I think that's important. Like Nigeria at this point in time seems like the, it's almost like watching corporate America, where the big companies that are kind of doing what they're doing are really going anywhere. Sometimes even shrinking or, or going backwards. And then you have the, the smaller countries that are doing all these interesting things, growing quickly, trajectory as well is good if there's somebody from the outside looking in of course you want to put your money in the book to look like they're going in the upward trajectory where your money will grow where you know the the business environment is stable where there's lots of opportunities for the youth as opposed to a place that's just big for being big basically and it's regressing because of protectionist and, and poor policies if you look at a lot of the stuff that has come out over the past couple of weeks decisions of the government and stifling business it, it's 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 just so like it's it almost seems extremely malicious. I, I I hesitate to put that claim out. It seems quite malicious to like do all to essentially in one year or the last two years effectively make rules that specifically target certain types of businesses that that have generated income and value for many Nigerian people. Um, and and it's it's. <sighs> It's almost painful because you know the potential of such a country with the volume of people. Like, there's so much that could happen. If Nigeria just trajectorily got the threats, for example, if they resolve the electricity situation and security situation, just those two things. Like, I don't need a president to do anything else. I don't need an administration to do anything. Just those two things, security and just electricity, were sorted. Like, that is your only. Like, I don't even need you to be build a highway. Deal with those two. And, and everything is going to everything you know changes dramatically and then just get out of the way don't don't introduce new rules committees bills fines you know registrations people have to do make business as easy as possible for people and the, the results will be incredible uh, but for some reason we just seem insistent on some form of self-sabotage uh but sorry I, I'll, I'll get off my soap my soapbox right now but nigeria within this space of course super large country you know, GDP is still the largest in Africa just because of the scale of our population. Um, but, you know, that may not be very true for very long. You know, GDP per capita is slightly behind many other countries in Africa. And um, unfortunately, we're going to continue to see a downward shift in things like that. Yeah, I think I agree. So now, uh with all of this said, do you guys have any closing thoughts? Um, and it can be 
just talking about points from the first episode uh, or the second episode or even the, the third episode that this will be this conversation will be a part of uh, where we talked about the security system um, security security <laughs> overlook of Nigeria of how of where Nigeria is in terms of security um, I mean we're coming up on the one year anniversary of uh, of October 2020 um, and what happened then. Um, and so just bearing that in mind, do you have any final closing thoughts of like where Nigeria is and where we could possibly be post COVID, um, post our COVID reality? I think we're in a very, I think we're in a very dangerous position and this has not been an alarmist. It's just looking at the situation on ground and, um, you know, having a comparative analysis with the rest of the world. Um, <clears throat> I had a chat with a, a colleague uh, over the weekend, and one of the things we discussed was, you know, you know, Nigeria's over reliance on oil, and even Tenny actually wrote a post uh, on that recently. Um, and you know, my position was, well, we tend, we, we maybe we should capitalize on this oil thing that we have because over the next 20, 30 years, it might, you know, wrap up in terms of utility around around the world, um, and then move to tech. And his argument was, well. The gap between Nigeria and, you know, should I say, Singapore, for example, or Japan, um, is so wide that no amount of oil drilling, no amount of oil, if it's 400 bucks a barrel, would get us to that level. Mm-hmm. However, what tech would do is to accelerate the closure of that gap because it just skips many steps and puts us right there on the mantle to be able to, you know, care for ourselves. But when you think about that kind of conversation, that kind of statement, and look at what the Nigerian government is doing or how they are acting towards, you know, this innovative um, practices by the younger population or the more, should I say, more exposed population, it just shows you that there's we're at loggerheads. The leadership and the followership are not in agreement, and that's a recipe for disaster. Um, the rest of the world is going to leave Nigeria behind. South Africa will leave Nigeria behind. South Africa will always bounce back because, and, and this is something I think we can explore in another episode. Um, is there something to it that having a foreign, a mixture of African and foreign, or should I say white leadership, mm. you know, helps to steady the ship and, and direct your progress? Or is it something whereby, well, you know, just allow Africans to do their thing and somehow they'll figure it out? Well, I, I will go for the former, not the latter, um, because I always give the argument that if you had left the issues of the world to Africans to kind of develop, do you think we'll have airplanes, we'll have healthcare systems, we'll have vaccines mm. and all that stuff? You know, I don't, I, I, I probably don't believe that, you know. So at some point, there has to be some collaboration or some awakening that, listen, this Pan-Africanist we're talking about, yes, we can have that feeling, but at the same time, we have to collaborate with the rest of the world. But the Nigerian government, as we're seeing it, we're shutting down Twitter, banning crypto, not really trying to engage with the rest of the world, trying to understand what is happening. We are shooting ourselves in the foot. And in the long, in the long run, Nigeria is a, a time bomb that would explode and would hurt us even more. So I think what I what I see with this post-COVID environment, what I see with this whole activity that we're doing right now in Nigeria. Uh, you know the the the, 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 the Boko Haram, uh, the kidnappings and all that stuff. These are just early signs or early warnings of greater things to come. And it's going to take something really, really spectacular to turn us around onto a new path of of, of success and glory. Um, but people are doing their best. I mean, the, like for example, we talk about the culture, the Afrobeats and all these people in in the arts in the arts field 
are doing what they can to raise the flag and be proud of Nigeria. However, the places that really matter to support the, the efforts they're putting in, um, there's a lack of uh, synchronization there. So it's, it's, it's a big problem. Yeah, I... I... Uh, Nigeria's security situation is one of those really painful things to think about. The country with the largest standing army in Africa is struggling with some, is, is, has been struggling with the best for effectively a decade with bandits that are in one forest or two, maybe two forests that everybody knows where that forest is. But those bandits are still able to capture, you know, 300 children a day. Um, so much so that that has now turned into a lucrative field that has further destabilized security in the country. Right? So I was watching, I was listening to um, something about the, the Boko Haram situation, how kidnapping spiraled um, and how that was connected to bring back our girls and how that helped you know, go Boko Haram raise a lot of money and all that kind of stuff. But it's like in the past five to ten years, um, you know, Nigeria's security situation has evolved. For a country that objectively, you may be, a lot of people make the argument that the strongest standing out in Africa, maybe second strongest. Um, resolving that kind of crisis, especially with a force, like you genuinely have a sense of where they are, right? And you're going to pull in partners from other countries to resolve this issue. There certainly seems to be some issue of will. We've seen a lot of uh scandals come out in the past 10 years or past five or six years where like you know generals have stolen billions of dollars meant for soldiers you know soldiers have protested and uh, you know protested not having the weapons they need to fight for war uh you see that there's something going on or maybe it's a will issue but it is you know the result of that the result of the bombings that were so far away from us now is that you know the kidnappings are very close to us now the headmen are very close to us now the insecurity generally within the states all over the country is very close to us now and it's not going in the right direction um and it's you remember i was just saying a few moments ago that electricity and security that's all i need the government to resolve everything else just get out of the way just get out of the way of business people get get out of the way of um and you know directionally been going in such a poor direction that you know like that year last month i have genuine concerns about you know what the country is is turning to you see the president's effectively deploying forces in the eastern region that's as minimal you know people are just interested in self-determination or a better nigeria for them and having leverage in, in the nigerian you know, experiment that we have, but no, you send, you know, you send, you send the whole army contingent there instead of going to battle the the people doing kidnappings, instead of going to battle the, the terrorists up north. Um, but it just shows, you know, flawed priorities and people, people not thinking even in the medium term. Um, and it's, it, it's, it, there's a huge risk that involves and so attacking your course and, and God forbid, that happens, but I'm, you know, I'm hoping that administration and and, and and tide turns against the current approach that the government is taking from a security perspective. But um, things definitely don't look uh, don't look very good. Yeah, I would agree with the both of you that there seems to be no sense of focus and direction. I mean, I, and I guess I get it in a in a country where there's so much happening in, in for for the average person, if you have so much going on, it might be harder to pinpoint where you should focus on one. But from as outsiders looking in, there seems to be 
like a clear sign of what should be focused on and the government isn't doing so and it could be for a myriad of reasons including one just corruption and whatever power plays or whatever um stakes that they have in those areas where they should be focused on but i definitely i don't i typically have an optimistic look on most things but i don't really have an optimistic look on nigeria um and its future especially concerning security uh but at least we'll be here to to capture all those stories um either through personal interviews or just news updates um here at parts of africa and we thank you listeners for your time in listening to us uh, over the past three episodes. We look forward to bringing you more content in this series. Um, stay tuned for the next episode in two weeks. Bye. Hello, listeners. We hope you have enjoyed our conversation with Tenny and our wrap-up at the end of it. We have super exciting episodes lined up for you as we explore the African continent and the different dynamics across it. Please follow us on Twitter at PodSaveAfrica, the O is a zero, and on Instagram at PodSaveAfrica, where the O is an O, and on Facebook at PodSaveAfrica. You may also email us at PodSaveAfrica at gmail.com or contact us via our website, SaveAfricaPod.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on all your listening platforms. We'll speak to you in two weeks. Thank you.